you'll stay there in 1 John in chapter 2. We're going to begin with uh, verse 12. I think I should have added to the prayer request this morning. Um, my wife and I, we um, this morning woke up and had a second teenager in our house. Um, our oldest daughter turned 13 today, and woo. And then next Sunday, I'm going to have a 15-year-old, and that's when it starts getting real, right? It's like, come on now. Woo. I don't know if, if I feel that they're getting older or I'm just getting older. What's happening, Dan? What is happening? All right. <laughs> the events of last Sunday in Sutherland, Texas, no, no doubt, took us... Uh, I would imagine by shock, uh, when we left church, uh, we started maybe on our phones getting the updates and getting home and saying, maybe seeing the uh, news reports and no doubts um, what occurred in South Texas was devastating. Um, and our hearts and our prayers go out to uh, the First Baptist Church there in Sutherland Springs and um, the people there, the whole community that was impacted by such evil. And it's hard to believe that sitting in a service even like this this morning, that we would not be safe um, on a Sunday morning anymore. But it's truly the reality we live in. It's the reality of our day. But something I, I want you to think about in, in light of that, um, we live amidst dangers every day. And we see the headlines daily of the reality of evil in our day. And many dangers we obviously want to protect ourselves from and protect others from and our family from, no doubt. But one of the things that I continue and reminded of in light of the day we live in and the realities around us, and as I read Scripture, I'm reminded that, yes, we live amidst dangers that are real. But Scripture warns of dangers as well that we must be vigilant about. And so this morning, as, as we think about, yeah, we live in a world that is very dangerous, very dangerous. But I want us to see this morning Jesus and his apostles, as John writes this morning, wants us to be vigilant over our soul, very vigilant over our soul. Because there are great dangers this morning that affect more than just our physical life. But they affect eternal life. They impact eternal death. It's that kind of stuff on the line that Scripture is dealing with this morning. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to look at this text and for us to see straight from the Father heart of God, God's heart for us, that he calls us to be in the world. Jesus said this but not to be of it. Yes, we can't get out of this world. We can't get and remove ourselves from all the dangers around us. There's not enough security, ultimately, that will protect us from everything going on. But there is a word here this morning that gives you and I all that we need, that the truth so that we, yes, in the world, we don't have to be of it, though. And, and there's two words that I want us to think this morning as we just read this text. It's the word abide, and it's the word resist. 
And I, and I think that's what John has in mind here. As children of God, the family of God, we are a people who abide, and we are people who resist. And, and so what are those things that we're abiding in, and what are those things we are to resist? And we see them evident, I think, in the text today. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. Just three sections I want us to look at and three points that I want us to see. One, who are the children of God? Who are they? What does John say about them? And then second, that children of God are to love God and not the world. But what does that mean? We'll see that. And that children of God are to stay on guard, to stay on guard. And so, first of all, children of God, who are they? Look at verse 12 of chapter 2, and I'll just read the first three verses for you. And listen to this, and I want you to observe what John does here. He does some very interesting things, okay? He, he's going to repeat some things. And so if you ever read this section and you think, wait, did I just read that or, or did I get lost and go back to, to another verse or whatever? But he's going to repeat some things and there's a reason for them. And so look at the first three verses this morning. I am writing to you, verse 12, little children, because your sins have been forgiven, you for his name's sake... I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the father. And I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so first of all, I want us to see here who is John writing to. What's his emphasis here? It's the children of God. I mean, look at the words he uses here, little children, fathers, young men, uh, children. And so the idea here, he has the idea of the family in mind, that the, the family of God, as he puts his pen to the papers he's writing, he has in mind the church, the children of God. And I think he also has in mind here just the, the different age range that we see in a church, Obviously, children, uh, little children, children, young men, fathers. I think also possibly that he also has a spiritual maturity in mind here too. If you think about children, maybe these are young believers new to the faith, which was definitely present in the audience that John was writing to. It could be young men. These are uh, those maybe steadily growing in the faith. Uh, And then fathers, maybe these are those who are mature in the faith, those who are to be wise, even those who maybe teach and lead. But I want you to hear, he's addressing the children of God, the family of God. And if you think about it, really our world is made up of just two families. When you read scripture, it's made up of two families. Jesus spoke of this in John 8. John speaks of it in 1 John 3.10 when he says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Those obviously are the children of the enemy. And so there's two families. That's how John sees the world. Those who are children of God and those who are children of Satan. That's how he sees it. That's how Jesus saw it. And so who is the children of God? The first thing he says, they're forgiven. So key, especially what John's been talking about in this letter. Remember last week he talked about how we view sin. Some view sin and they're like, well, hey, I know Christ, but I'm just going to live it up and I have license to sin because, oh, you know, Jesus will just forgive me. He's cool God, right? That's who Jesus is to me. And then we also learned last week that, hey, sin, I didn't inherit sin. I, I'm not depraved. Well, hold on a second. 
That's a misconception because the Bible is real clear. No, we inherited sin from Adam. Every single one of us depraved, lost. All fallen short of the glory of God. Then the other view that we saw last week was that um, I've received this knowledge. I've come to know God and therefore I do not sin. I do not sin. And John says, no, hey, I'm writing on behalf of you because I don't want you to sin. But a reality is we still will sin. Now, we have the power of God in us that we may not sin. You betcha. But the reality is we still do. And so what he says right here is about those who are children of God. They are forgiven, past, present, and future sins. In fact, Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And so he starts off here with the great truth that we as children of God are forgiven. And then look what he does next. He talks to the fathers, and he does this twice. If you can recognize this here, you saw the repetition here, both in verse 13 and verse 14. But he says, fathers, uh, they're, they're the children of God also, who know him who has been from the beginning. Why does he do this twice? Why do you think he does this? I, I think he points out the fathers. Who are these? Those who maybe are heads of the homes, that they're teachers, that they're leaders. And I think he's telling them, hey, listen, your role is vital. The repetition in Scripture makes a point. I think what he's saying is your role is vital, and you must teach Jesus and the truth about Jesus that he is from the beginning. So what was the point John was trying to make? Hey, we have all this false teaching around us saying that Jesus was just merely a man, but you must teach against that and oppose that teaching because Jesus was not just merely a man. He was the God man, 100% God, 100% man. He was from the beginning. And so fathers, heads of homes, teach that, teach that, teach that, teach that, teach that, teach that. And never forget that. He, there's an emphasis there. And then he says also about the children of God, they are those who have overcome the evil one. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, overcame the power of sin and death and also the enemy. And so those who believe in Jesus have also experienced that. They've been raised from death to life, and now they have overcome the evil one as well because Jesus has done that for them. And so they have overcome the evil one, children of God, have. And then lastly, look what he says in verse 14. He says about these young men, they are strong, and they, uh, the word of God abides in them. And so what is he saying here? He's not talking about these young men that are physically strong in stature. That's not the idea. The idea here is these are people in the church who know the word of God. They know the gospel. They know sound doctrine. And therefore, they're strong against sin and its temptations and, and strong against error and deception. Because why? Because they have the word of God. They have the gospel and they abide in the word of God. Guys, I want you to hear this morning. That's the source of our strength, the scripture. That's the source of our strength. And we must stay in the word of God as children of God, so that we remain strong, strong by his spirit. That's the children of God, John says. That's who they are. And then look what he tells them. And I want you, these last two points are going to take up the rest of our time, but I want you to hear what he says in verse 15. We're to be on guard. We're to be vigilant over our soul as the church, as children of God, because look what's 
tempting us. Look what's coming at us. Look what's trying to draw us astray and to destroy us. Remember the purpose of the enemy, John 10, 10, a real loaded verse that says the son has come, Jesus has come to give us life and abundant life, but what did the enemy come to do? He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And so John's gonna say here, here's some things that are real and present in our day that the enemy wants to use as a vehicle to steal, kill, and destroy us. And so we must be on guard, we must be vigilant over our soul. These are dangers that are eternal life and eternal death issues. And so look what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Thomas Jefferson, you guys know who he is, but one of the things that he did is he, he basically put together his own Bible, right? Jefferson basically decided, okay, you know what? I don't like these verses, and I don't like these verses, so here's my Bible, and it's called the Jefferson Bible, right? But we all, if we're honest, we do that sometimes with Scripture. There are verses that we look at in Scripture and we, we just don't like, right? We make our mind up, uh, I don't know, man, that's getting a little, little too personal. A little up close in my personal space. And this verse right here is one of those. I mean, if you're honest, there's a lot of times we, we read a verse like that and we're like, I'm just going to read right over that one because that one gets a little too, too much for me. Some of us may look at that and may say, well, that's, that's a little legalistic. What is, and some of us look at this and we think, what in the world does that mean? I thought Jesus loved the world and he's telling me not to love the world. So what in the world does that mean? And so then what we do is we just say, well, just skip over that. We, we do that. We do that. Whether knowingly or not, we do that at times with the word of God. So what does this verse mean? Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Real simply, the idea of the world here that John has in mind is the system of rebellion, system of pride that seeks to do this, to displace God, to displace his rule, to kick him off the throne of ruling and reigning as Lord and King. And so it's this invisible spiritual system of evil that's dominated by Satan himself and is actively hostile and alienated toward God. It's a system that is dead set against the gospel. That's what this idea of world here is. And so we are not to love the world. Or another phrase we could, or another word we could use is worldliness. Do not love worldliness, which is the loving of the values and the pursuits of the world that stands completely opposed to God. So John says, don't love worldliness. John says, if you do love worldliness, the love of the Father is not in you. And so John says, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. I love how Joel Bleak, Beek, excuse me, describes worldliness. He says, the goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward, to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. They burst with selfish desires rather than heartfelt supplications. If they do not deny God, they ignore him or forget him or else they use him only for their selfish ends. Worldliness, Big says, is human nature without God. And so I think John's call here for us to not love worldliness causes us to ask ourselves in our lives as Christian, is the lines between our walk with the Lord and worldly conduct, is it blurry in our mind and in our life? Do we know the difference. And how in our life, how is it different than a non-believer? Is it any different? 
on what we value, on what we pursue. This warning right here is good for us. It's a warning for our good, as John Newton says, to see the pathway to solid joy, to see the pathway to lasting treasures. It's the expression of God's mercy. It's the expression of his wisdom. And so where does worldliness live? Where does it exist? Ultimately, in the heart. Jesus said in John 12, 34, from the outer floor of the heart, the mouth will speak. That sure, there's outward expressions in our life of, of worldliness, but where does it ultimately lie? Here in the heart. And that's where John goes next. Look at what he says in verse 16. He talks about the essence of worldliness. And look what he says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And so this is the essence of, of worldliness. These are the three basic desires that come from the world system, and they don't come from the Father. And so what are they? The first one is the lust of the flesh. So what is lust? In this contest specifically is those desires, those cravings for evil things, those things that oppose God. They're not in harmony with his will. And we have such desires in our flesh. But what's the flesh? The flesh is the sinful nature of man, the rebellious, self-dominated self that's in opposition to God. And we all still battle that. That's why when Paul, in, in his writings, you continue to see him, I, he'll say things like, I die daily, I die daily. And that you and I, that we would die daily to the flesh that we would not get into those, give into those lustful desires and those, those cravings. And a lot of times what John, many believe John has in mind here with this lust of the flesh deals a lot with, with physical immorality, sexual immorality. And then he also refers here to the lust of the eyes. You think about our eyes. God created our eyes to behold what beauty? To behold what is good through them. But the enemy can use our eyes as a strategic avenue to elicit wrong desires. And we get that. We see that in Scripture, Genesis 3, 6. Remember with Eve, she was told not to eat of the tree, but yet she sees this tree that it was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from it. She ate of it. Gave to her husband who also ate of it. So what do we see that as? Materialism, right? We see that as idolizing possessions. And so the lust of the eyes. Then he says the pride of life, another essence of worldliness that we see. What is the pride of life? It's arrogance. It's seeking to be something apart from the will of God. Sometimes it can look like this. Maybe it's a status that we have, and that becomes kind of a symbol of our identity, whether it's our role at work. That's really what we use to kind of define us, and we kind of hold on to that, we kind of put that forth to others, or, or maybe, you know, for some, it's, it's your degrees, your education, look at, look at me, and we kind of put things like that forth, and we do that sometimes. And so the, the pride of life. And so John exposes here the godliness of the things of this world, and then exposes, really, their futility. That, that worldliness the lust of the flesh, the lust of lies, the pride of life is futile. It's wasteful living. And look what he says next in John 17. He says, the world is passing away and all its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives 
ever. There is no future in worldliness. There's no future. It is futile. It is wasteful. This world is temporary. It's superficial. It doesn't satisfy. It will deceive us into thinking that it has to all that it has to offer, but it leads to what? Destruction. It leads to dissatisfaction. The things of this world are, are worthless is what John is saying here. Don't love them. They won't last. They won't last. I was reading an article this week um, from Desiring God. It came through in my email and really struck me, and as I'm thinking of what I was preaching on today and this text right here of of what, how this looks sometimes with worldliness and and the fleetingness of it, and the article was dealing with uh, adultery, and how really in adultery, one will be willing to take 10 seconds, and we'll just, we'll just call it that, just 10 seconds. And they'll throw away a lifetime for 10 seconds. They will throw away a lifetime for 10 seconds. And that's, I think that's a great picture of, of what worldliness is. It's 10 seconds. It's not lasting forever. It'll be gone. And sometimes it's gone that quick. But there are things that are more important that we are to be investing in. And they're the will of God. And it, according to what John says right here, lasts forever. Forever. So don't have what John Owen describes as living affections for dying things. Too often we do. But that's what worldliness is. May we not pursue such. Instead, may we resist worldliness. And may we abide in the love of the Father and the Son. We're to love God. And so really the answer to worldliness is the cross. It's Jesus. Only through the power of the cross can we successfully resist the seduction of this fallen world. And so I think what John would say is do this. Crowd worldliness out with the gospel and with the word of God. Abide in the word of God. Abide in the love of the Father. Resist worldliness. It's not something we just sufficiently can do on our own. It's only through the power of the cross that we can do that. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual system, the spiritual war and battle. It's with the enemy. And so through the power of the cross, through the power of Jesus, we can stand and resist worldliness. That's what children of God are called to do. We also have got to stand against another enemy, and I want us to look at this in our last few minutes here. Look at verse 18. We've got to stay on guard. And so what he's going to call us to do here is not only to abide in the Father's love and to resist worldliness, but hey, we've got to abide in truth and resist deception because it's real. It was real in John's day. It's real in our day. So listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, children, again, this la familia turn. I just use Spanish. There we go. Um, he says here, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So what's the last hour? Real simply, it's that time between when Jesus came, his first coming, and his second coming. And so what that means is we live in the last hour 
currently. And he warns that antichrists are a real, present, current threat. Now, I find this very interesting. He says, just as you heard that antichrist is coming. And I think what happens a lot of times is we may get fixed on the antichrist, whatever that may be, and we get fixed on that. But what John is saying here, no, 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 no. okay, I think this is implied here. There's antichrist. There was antichrist in the, the New Testament. In fact, Jesus predicted that. And what John is saying, they're everywhere. And he's saying anyone who opposed, and he's going to define it a little bit more, but anyone who opposed Jesus and teaches such is an antichrist. And he's saying here this is a real threat, and this is proof that we live in the last hour, and we surely do. And then look at verse 19. He said, they went out, speaking of these antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. And so what is John saying here? He's saying, be on guard. And he warns us of false teachers who rise where? From among us, from among believers. In fact, Paul addressed this to the church at Ephesus with the elders there. He said, be on guard. For there may be those who among you are false teachers. So here's the idea is there may be some among the church body who conform to this outward expression of godliness, who maybe even uh, have church membership, but aren't truly saved and even departing from the truth of the gospel. And so their departure, I would think here, is just as hostile and big as Judas when he leaves the Last Supper table. It's just the same. And there are those, John says, among you, and he says that are those antichrists who do such. And then look at verse 20 and 21. But you, and so this change here, but you, children of God, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. And so believers in Christ, John says, they have this anointing of the Holy Spirit. And John is specifically written to them because what do they know? They know the truth of God. And he wants to remind them of that. He wants us to to help them understand how significant it is to continue in that truth, to abide in that truth. I think in these two verses here, verse 20 and 21, John gives us these two significant marks that are key to us as children of God, to to genuine Christianity. And and I think this is what we can pull out of this text, is that first the Holy Spirit guards the children of God from error and keeps us from deception. And then second, not only does he guard them from error, but the Holy Spirit guides believers in knowing the truth. And so as true Christians, we kind of have this lie detector, and we can persevere in the truth. And he's saying that's who the true believers are, is they have this anointing of the Holy Spirit that guards them from lies and guides them in the truth. So who are these antichrists? Listen to what he says again in verse 22 and 23. He says, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one confesses the son has the father also. 
And so John says, those who do not know the truth but are liars are those who what? Deny Jesus to be the Christ. We've talked about this a couple weeks, but this is what one would call docetism, to separate Christ the Savior from Jesus the man, believing that Christ only appeared to be a human being. Even this idea that Jesus the man took on this, this spirit of Christ at his baptism, but then lost it before his crucifixion. And some believe in this. Even some Mormons believe this and hold to this. It's a teaching that, that is still present and evident today. And it's what Antichrists do, according to what John says here. They deny the true nature of Jesus, and they deny the Christ. And therefore, what John says, they deny the Father also. And so on the other hand, believers confess and believe, though, in Jesus and the Father also. That's who believers are, the children of God. And look what he says in verse 24 and 25. He says, as for you, again, fixed on the children of God here, he says, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. And so what is John telling them here? I want you to think about this this morning. Think about when you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. When was that? Do you remember that time? It's amazing, over just period of ministry, the different stories I hear. Some people, man, they're driving in the car and they're by themselves and all of a sudden that becomes kind of God's space and God brings them to faith just by themselves driving in the car. Some, it's sitting in a service like this and through the word of God. Or, I mean, just different ways. Our, our stories look totally different. But I think what John says right here, listen to what he says, as for you in verse 24, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What did you hear in the beginning when you came to faith, what was it that you heard? That Jesus died for you. That you are a sinner. That he came and he died so that your sin could be forgiven and he took sin upon himself for you. He became, I don't know if you heard all these words, but he became that substitute for you. Like we talked about last week, that propitiation to satisfy the righteousness and the wrath of God so that you could have eternal life because you cannot save yourself. You cannot do enough good stuff. Whatever word you heard, which was along those lines about the gospel, the truth of the gospel, here's what John's saying is abide. Continue to abide in that. It abides in you. Continue to abide in that. And as you do, as you stay faithful, you will continue to experience what? The intimate communion of the Father and the Son. And only that, you will persevere to experience eternal life, not only now, but forever. That's the promise. And then look what he says as we wrap up today. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you as for you. The anointing which you received from him, Jesus, abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has been taught you, you abide 
in him. What John is saying here is that the Holy Spirit is the best teacher. He will remain with believers always. He will protect us from lies. He'll protect us from falsehoods that could lead us away from Jesus. He will illuminate the word of God and keep us in the truth of the gospel. Now what John is not saying here is he's not saying don't sit under sound teaching. He's not saying don't instruct others according to the word of God. He's not saying don't admonish other believers. He's, he's not saying that, but what he's emphasizing here is, listen, you have the Holy Spirit to guide you into truth and to guard you from lies. And he's the best teacher. And so as you're listening to truth, as you're being admonished, as you're, you're being instructed, know that you have the Holy Spirit as that lie detector, as that guiding light into truth. And so we've got to be reminded, I think of what John is saying here, we've got to be continually reminded of the gospel. Stay on guard, stay faithful. I was reminded this week of how significant our role as, as parents, um, youth workers, children workers, how significant our role is as the church to each other. I was, this past two weekends ago, I, a gentleman in our neighborhood through a ministry that we're a part of in, in the colony of wildlife, uh, a dad came up to me that uh, as a family we've known, we've seen for a while, I haven't known him real well, but we've seen them, and um, same grade as my oldest daughter, and dad came up to me and said, hey, listen, would you be willing this week to go and sit with my son at Starbucks, so that kind of got me going there, and I was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, and just the three of us talk, and, and I just want to talk about the gospel to him and want you to be there as, as another person that he could turn to and ask questions to as he goes through his, his middle school years because y'all are going to see each other. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, we can, we can go do that. That's like, you know, that's like the... the everything the pastor loves to hear. Yeah, I'd love to go do that. That'd be awesome. And I just loved it because I sat there with, with his dad and the son and just to hear the dad just going over again the gospel and just saying, I want to make sure you know this, son. And I want you to make, know, know for sure people around you who know it too and are there to help you. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's First John. How important that is. Children, little children, young men, fathers, that we continue to teach just as Paul did. I mean, I don't know if you remember, and I'll just wrap this up, but in 1 Corinthians, what did Paul remind us of? And I want you just to hear this today, and we've got to continually go back to this and remember this. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. This is what matters most, Paul says. What I also received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And after that, he appeared even to, to 500 more. And it goes on and on. But what he's saying here is don't forget the gospel. It's the most important thing. Don't be led astray from the truth of it. It's everything. It's everything. And so the children of God, they believe it. 
As a result, they're forgiven. They're forgiven and they know the Father. And so today, can you stand here today and say, I'm forgiven? As a child of God, can, can you stand here today and say, I know Jesus and I know his daddy. I am a child of God. Can you say that? Can you say that? And then church, may we resist worldliness. May we resist deception. Because they're both real dangers. They're real. May we abide. Let me pray.